It's Tuesday, May 18th. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast. I'm Rebecca Darst. When the 2020s began, Jeff Bezos was already the richest man in the world. His net worth, $115 billion. One pandemic later, Forbes' real-time billionaires list puts it at $189.5 billion and counting. Amazon's profits grew 220% in the first quarter of 2021, year-on-year. If it was a country, Amazon would be the 14th richest in the world. To top it all off, Bezos recently beat back a union drive in Alabama handily, even after it was endorsed by President Biden. So with the wind seemingly at his back, what's next for Bezos and Amazon, the titan he built? Antitrust sentiment is growing on both the left and right. Will it make Bezos just a little less rich and Amazon a little less dominant? Bloomberg reporter Brad Stone is out with a new book on the man and the company, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. It reads Jeff Bezos like, dare I say, an open book. Brad, thank you for joining us on the podcast. This is going to be a salacious conversation. Thank you, Rebecca. (laughs) And I have to say, I love this. It was a real page turner. I read it on a Kindle over the weekend. The irony. The irony, right? So let's first talk about the clever title. So Amazon Unbound. Amazon's no longer constrained by textbooks or books of any kind, but maybe like Prometheus Unbound, Amazon, I don't know, do you think they could be, they're flying pretty high right now. That's right. Could they be headed for a fall? (laughs) Perhaps. And they're unbound from the normal laws of gravity that seem to impact most big companies, right? Mm -hmm. When companies get bigger, the they get sluggish. The bureaucracy kind of right. clogs up, gums up the works. And at least until now, right, the company, if anything, is growing more quickly than it hasn't been before. But you're right. Those are the reasons why the title kind of appealed to me. Mm-hmm. So Jeff has gotten a lot richer since your first book about Amazon, The Everything Store. So you're, I mean, you're like the go-to guy on Amazon. He's also gotten swole. <laughs> he's gotten, yeah, right. he's worked out. So talk to me about that evolution of Amazon getting huge, Jeff getting huge, Jeff becoming Hollywood Jeff. Is this an organic evolution for the company and the individual, or is this a company that's trying to be too big? too fast, too much. I think it's mostly organic. I kind of compare it to a boulder rolling downhill, gathering speed. The Everything Store came out in 2013. Bezos is a relative pauper then uh, (laughs) by today's standards, you know, a couple billion and, you know, today a fortune of 200 billion. Uh But, you know, the mechanics, the clockwork that he set into motion, even back then, the marketplace, the fulfillment centers, I mean, it was all at a much smaller scale, Uh but it's just kind of grown quite nicely. Now, as for his own transformation, that visible aspect to it's the obvious thing and the thing that's been happening right in front of our eyes. I won't speak to how organic that has been. I assume (laughs) the exercise regiment is quite quite fierce. (laughs) But so much has accompanied that. Like when I wrote the first book, he was the geeky technologist who obsessed about Amazon. And today he's got the Washington Post, Blue Origin, his philanthropy, his new girlfriend. I report on the big boat he's building. He's like a man of the world and also a member of the elite, elite society in a way that he never seemed to have any interest in back then. It's interesting because when you talk about money managers, like on Wall Street or hedge fund managers, this sudden embrace of a flashy lifestyle of suddenly coming out as very affluent and getting like, you know, the trophy car, the trophy house, the trophy lifestyle, et cetera, whatever that's going to be, that's a sign that the individual has taken their eye off the ball. (laughs) And that maybe, you know, that this is a dangerous patch for them. Do you think that applies in the world of Jeff? 
Well, you know, it's funny because I think I chart his evolution in the book. And I do think there's a period of time in sort of 2018 where employees were kind of wondering where he had gone. And they didn't know. And, you know, the answer was he was in L.A. jetting about the country with Lauren Sanchez. And yet 2019 and 2020, particularly during the pandemic, he kind of reemerges as a force inside Amazon with problem solving and Uh pandemic maneuvering. So it hasn't been in terms of his stepping back from the company, an easy path to chart. Mm -hmm. It would have been much more narratively simple if it had been the story of a guy kind of losing his way. But I don't think that's the case here. I mean, I think one of Bezos's remarkable abilities is to multitask and compartmentalize. Uh And that's how he does the post and the space and now the philanthropy and Amazon and while apparently having quite a robust social life. So you started this book, you started writing in 2018? Actually, 2017, I think, wow. was when I first started. Yeah, so HQ2 hadn't even started. Holy moly. Right, so it was it was a lot kind of happened in the last few years. Absolutely, not least of which, I mean, Amazon has become the poster child or the poster company for prosperity in the COVID age. I mean, this is the company that probably cashed in more than any other on the various disruptions caused by COVID. They were there to benefit from virtually all of them. How transformational do you think the past year plus of COVID will prove to the Amazon story? I I don't think it's transformational because, as I said, the clockwork was already there and humming quite nicely, but it really was an injection of steroids into the arm of this company and and kind of perversely so, right? Because they already had all the advantages, right? Uh It was a $900 billion company with access to, to cheap capital and access to the world's leading technologists, you know, eclipsing Walmart in market cap back before the pandemic started on a path to eclipsing it in sales. So, you know, the fact that then all of the physical retail competition either shuts its doors or sees a big drop off, the fact that some of the flailing parts of Amazon's business like grocery delivery suddenly revives because people are scared to go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the TV shows and movies and, and prime video that suddenly people for a year and a half have nothing to do but watch that stuff. And we didn't even talk about AWS and the cloud mm-hmm. business and right. Zoom, Zoom being an AWS customer. So that yeah. business takes off. So they were good beforehand. And then they got fortunate on top of that. And uh-huh. it's not transformational, but it certainly gave them even another advantage. So over the course of the two books that you've written just about Amazon since 2013, you've spoken to hundreds of people who are Jeff adjacent, (laughs) who know him, who know people who know him. Have you ever talked to Jeff? Yeah. So, you know, when I covered Amazon for for Newsweek and the Mm -hmm. New York Times, uh, I spoke to him many times in the course of just covering the company over the years. When I started writing The Everything Store, I talked to him. He said he didn't want to cooperate. I talked to him a couple more times for kind of smaller stuff. Uh He didn't like the book. You know, Rebecca, (laughs) you remember Mackenzie Bezos' famous one-star review. But, you know, subsequently, (laughs) I saw him at an event. I went to their climate change press conference. I asked him a question. And Amazon did cooperate with this Mm -hmm. book. And they allowed me to talk to a dozen or so senior executives. Jeff allowed me to talk to friends of his, colleagues. No, he did not sit for the reflectional Steve Jobs slash Walter (laughs) Isaacson type bedside Uh recollections. But that's really not his style. I really don't think that was special for me. It might have been slightly you know, residual animosity, but he simply doesn't really have to or seemingly want to answer hard questions about the trade-off that we're making with this enormous tech company in our midst. There's some backlash against tech billionaires as individuals. 
I think it's fair to say we're seeing it with Bill Gates at the moment for reasons unrelated to Microsoft, more just having to do with his accumulation of power and the way he's used it over the past couple of decades. And there's also a backlash against tech companies, in a sense. I want to suggest that that here in the U.S. anyway, there are bipartisan elements to that. As you know, Donald Trump was not a fan of Jeff Bezos, not a fan of The Washington Post, took aim at them many times. Now we've got Biden in the White House. Lena Khan, famously antitrust tech company targeting advocate, is about to have a a prominent role in the Biden administration. Now uh, talking about global corporate minimum tax is suddenly a feasible political proposition. Amazon, it seems, is at the center of all that, you know, charismatic, very wealthy tech billionaire, can be difficult, can have a difficult personality. Companies gotten huge. Both parties hate them for different reasons. <laughs> Do you think we're going to get through the next four years without Amazon or Jeff and Jeff taking a fall? Well, I mean, in terms of a real full-fledged fall, yeah. an existential breakup of the company or a canceling of the guy, no. I mean, yeah. I don't think anything that's severe. There's so many elements here to this backlash. One is the way in which these tech figures seem to have kind of flouted some of the current norms right, right around representation or personal conduct with what we're learning about Bill Gates right now, you know. Steve Jobs was lauded during his career for being so brutal and rough. And you kind of only imagine what he might be subjected to today if he were alive. Bezos was very late in bringing any kind of diversity to the Amazon leadership team. Kind of it's only started to happen recently. So that's one thread. I think they're being now held to the modern standard. And then, yeah, I think as the companies have gotten bigger, there's been this enlightenment about what it means for competitive balance, what it means for our economic health as we get this kind of oligopoly. And it it will be one of the challenges of the Biden administration to even forget about falling on their faces, like to even slow it down. And to have a reasonable antitrust or regulatory process based on the serious and complex facts on the ground. A lot of the hearings that we all tune in for are political circuses, Mm -hmm. right, where the Republicans are talking about conservative voices online and the Democrats are talking about something else. And the time is split between all these figures and nothing gets done. Mm -hmm. So we're still a long way from any sort of serious consideration of these companies and how they've gotten so big. Mm -hmm. Apropos of the flouting of norms and these kind of political relationships, let's talk about Amazon's impact on work and on labor relations, because I think Amazon is somewhat unique. I mean, again, I'm not the expert on Amazon here, but my observation is that Amazon is somewhat unique among tech companies in that I think many tech innovators and tech entrepreneurs are either naturally oblivious or willfully aloof to the impact that their disruptive technologies have on jobs and on companies and on labor relations. Maybe they just choose not to care because they're kind of geeky code types who just aren't interested in the broader labor impact. But with Bezos and Amazon, this is something that came through very clearly to me in reading your book. You have a company that has not just had revolutionary or even maybe a cataclysmic impact on work, but Jeff Bezos himself is someone who is deeply invested in organizational dynamics and in creating mechanisms that shape the way people should work. And so if there's a toxic or a hostile work environment emanating from Amazon, I have to believe it's by design. 
and that Jeff wants it that way. How do you respond? <laughs> right. No, I think you're right. And I hope that's a theme of the book. Now, obviously, they would object to some of the choice adjectives that, yeah. <laughs> that you've deployed. And they say, you know, that the allegations of a toxic workplace or a mean culture are anecdotal in nature. But look, I mean, 20 years ago, Bezos sort of surveyed the landscape. He saw that Amazon, uniquely among the tech companies, was going to employ a large blue-collar workforce. Mm -hmm. He looked at the experience of the U.S. steel companies and the U.S. automakers and decided that one of the challenges, the serious challenges to Amazon's growth was an entrenched and disgruntled workforce. Mm -hmm. And he created mechanisms in Amazon's relations with its employees to ensure that the work in the fulfillment centers was somewhat transactional. You know, mm -hmm. you came in, if you weren't promoted in a few years, you left. There are a lot of things that they do to enforce that, paying people to leave, stopping raises after three years. The impact of that and the algorithms which monitor performance and put employees under performance improvement plans, we look at that and we go, that's a mean culture. You yeah. know, that there are aspects of this that are really designed to undermine an employee's comfort. They want it that way, right? Yeah. They see this as a high-performance, high-velocity workforce. And the fact, I think, Rebecca, you're alluding to is like, this company is setting the labor norms now for all of American industry. And that's why at this size, with a million people working for Amazon, the mechanism has become to feel a little dangerous. Sure. And with that uh, perception of danger <laughs> to the labor force, do you think that there's enough political will or enough political momentum in terms of resistance to Amazon that can maybe put a stop to that or shape it or put some limits on it? Or is Amazon calling the shots now well, as far as the American workforce goes? They are receptive to criticism. Mm -hmm. And we've seen again and again, and most recently in Amazon's investor shareholder letter, the last one that Bezos wrote, where he says he's going to apply himself now to improving the day-to-day -day life of the Amazon worker. And look, right. I mean, <laughs> I, I actually believe that he's serious. Mm -hmm. When employees agitated about Amazon's climate impact, they introduced this thing called the Climate Pledge. Mm -hmm. He understands, I think, that customers need to feel comfortable clicking the Buy Now button yeah. and that these public relations controversies could impact that. Yeah. So I, I do think that they're taking it seriously. They moved to $15 an hour. They've just introduced a $17 an hour wage for some of the newer employees, partly because they want to use that as a competitive cudgel to yeah. hit Walmart over the head, which isn't doing that, but partly because they know they're this target right now of Bernie Sanders and others on the progressive left, and they're trying to get ahead of that and blunt the impact of the criticism. We're going to take a break to hear from some of our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more talk on Bezos with Brad Stone. Now, during the writing of this latest book, Jeff Bezos formally passed the CEO laurels to Amazon Web Services head Andy Jassy. You describe this division in your book as the Ivy League of Amazon, where all the big talent wants to end up. <laughs> so talk about the Jeff to Jassy transition. Yeah. Yeah. AWS, for, for folks who don't know, although most people mm -hmm. probably do at this point, it's, yeah. is the cloud services division. Jassy's run it since 2005, $50 billion a year sales rate which is really remarkable for mm -hmm. a 15-year-old. Even an independent 15-year-old company, it would be a massive story. Jassy was Jeff's shadow or chief of staff very early on, Harvard Business School graduate. 
you know, he's kind of cleaved from Jeff's rib in a lot of respects. So like, I don't, I don't know how dramatically things change. Uh-huh. I do think he's a little bit more in tune with, you know, the challenges of diversity and presenting a humbler target to regulators, really humble guy, but obviously like a really smart business operator in his own right. Uh-huh. The one thing though, that he does not have is that Bezos ability to reel off an email to senior executives, which contains the idea for Alexa, you know, which Bezos did in 2011, or push a team to create the ghost store, that cashierless ghost store. He's obviously super smart in his own right, but I don't think he's, he has the kind of inventor gene that Bezos does. So, but Bezos says he's going to stick around for that. So it really, I don't know how much changes, if anything. In that sense, do you see some of the luster coming off Amazon in terms of being a visionary or an inventive company? I mean, I know that's been a criticism that's been lobbed at uh, Apple under Tim Cook, that it's like an operations-driven company. Right. It's just not as exciting. Yeah. Like the luster went to Tesla. <laughs> the excitement right. went to Tesla. Except right? that, you know, that was a criticism leveled at Apple. And, you know, they've reeled off AirPods and other massive mm-hmm. businesses, and Apple is a two trillion dollar company. So mm-hmm. let's think of it as a spectrum with Tim mm-hmm. Cook on one end, and maybe Steve Ballmer to just pick on him on another yeah. as sort of the uninspiring operator. And you know, I feel like Jassy has the potential to be more on the Tim Cook side, yeah. just because the underlying, again, the health, the mechanics, the clockwork of Amazon right now is so healthy that you don't see much to slow it down. And Jassy yeah. will be the inheritor and the benefactor of that. Mm -hmm. So here's a question also in terms of AWS. I mean, the thing prints money. It's like the division prints money and that basically subsidizes Amazon's R&D. Do you foresee a future where AWS and the traditional sort of retail slash content, everything store business remain under the same roof? Can these stay under the same company or do you see them being spun off or separated in some way? I'll just make one point about the question, which is I actually view the proceeds of AWS as funding more AWS, you know, more data centers, expansion of services, geographical expansion. And there's something on the retail side, advertising, which Mm -hmm. is generating enormous cash flow at at high margins that is probably underwriting a lot of the the video and the R&D. So Bezos has run these units to be fairly separable if he ever wants to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's really a matter of will. And they don't seem to want to do it. They don't really like that kind of financial engineering. You know, many years in the future, do they voluntarily do it or they do it to get ahead of the government or does the government force them to do it? possible. But I would just say that, like, then we'll have a number of little baby Amazons running around. You know, picture Mm -hmm. a little bunch of baby companies with Bezos's face running around, which is, sorry, disturbing. And by the way, (laughs) like, that doesn't solve anybody's problems because those are probably fast-growing and also super competitive and ruthless companies. So, Mm -hmm. you know, pick your poison. Yeah. So let's talk about Jeff's vision for the Washington Post. It's hard to imagine that this was you know, a controversial acquisition when it happened. It's been a success story for him. He turned it around. He put it on a profitable track. It provided, a, you know, as Trump would call it, a tax shelter. It provided, in any event, an opportunity for him to showcase a way that his values were aligned with those of democracy and American totally. society. It gave him a platform to express those views. Where do you see him taking the post in the future? 
Yeah, I, I think you're right. The post has been good to Bezos in mm-hmm. terms of his image. He's not a ruthless monopolist. He's also the swashbuckling savior of a free press. That's right. Bezos has been great for the post. You know, he he shot down the first budgets they brought him because he didn't want to just lose money. He really turned around the operations and allowed them to focus on digital and focus on national and international coverage mm-hmm. and put the post on sound financial footing. We can look at the way he kind of wrapped himself up in the mantle of the post to fight the National Enquirer and go, Mm -hmm. okay, he's taken maybe some liberties there because I don't really feel like that saga had much to do with his ownership of the post. But I think, you know, going forward, nothing to me suggests that he's retreating from the post. I still feel like he meets with them every other week and asks them to bring him new ideas. And it's been an incredible platform to demonstrate not just his values, but his his system of invention, yeah. his system of operation and how it can be successful outside of Amazon. Do you see Jeff Bezos's ownership of the post in the same way that another billionaire might own a sports team or something? Mm-hmm. It's just a a thing they love to a play. play <laughs> I mean, no, like... because he has gotten into the operational details and devoted a significant amount of his own time, you know, to turning around the post. I don't really think it was a vanity purchase. Mm-hmm. And I also don't think he did it for political influence, because if that was the case, well, it sure did backfire significantly during the Trump years. Yeah. He doesn't meddle in the editorial decision making. Mm-hmm. You know, often a sports team owner gets into player development and whatnot, you know, Bezos hasn't really done that. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, he might buy an NFL team one day, right? Can you and you so, see him? I, does, I don't know if yeah. he seems like the NFL type. He doesn't, right. But, <laughs> you know, he, he didn't seem like a yacht owner. And yeah. he's building this big super yacht, which yeah. I report in the book. And I, I do think that, like, this is where Lauren Sanchez's influence uh-huh. comes in. And, you know, she's been around the NFL in her career. She was a uh-huh. sports reporter and had a child with Tony Gonzalez. And mm-hmm. Bezos also sees a lot of his properties intersecting and supporting each other in various ways. And live sports is an avenue of expansion for Prime Video. You could see if owning a team furthers Amazon's goals to get a lucrative, you know, fat exclusive contract with the NFL, that uh-huh. maybe he would do that. Too much money. So he's not just a yacht guy, but now he's a space guy. And I think this push into space is maybe an area where I think it's fair from reading the book and from our conversation so far to say that that's been a rockier entry for Jeff Bezos, right? I mean, is this a colossal mistake for for Jeff Bezos? Well, yeah. I mean, when you have a $200 billion fortune, you probably can afford some mistakes. He's always had the space dream. He started Blue Origin before SpaceX. He gave his valedictorian high school speech about this vision that he still has at Blue Origin Mm -hmm. to open up the space frontier. He just made some curious decisions early on, feeling like he could constrain the headcount, go slow, finance it himself. Mm -hmm. And Elon comes in with SpaceX and does the opposite of everything. Government contracts grows quickly very much out in the open. And then halfway through, Bezos, I think, gets a little bit of Elon envy, mm-hmm. at least in this respect, and changes course at Blue Origin. And the result, I think, has been a little bit of dysfunction there. Yep. Now, he says they're going to start taking tourists to suborbital space later this year. So unless, you know, it blows up and he's got a major disaster on his hands, yep. we might see Blue Origin a little differently in a couple of months. It's like, okay, yep. he's finally got a tourist business and and this is one of his dreams. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, he's selling a billion dollars an Amazon stock to finance yeah. this thing. If you ask me, could that money be better spent in, in philanthropic endeavors? Yeah. I would say perhaps. But, you know, this is his vision and his money. And he's had this dream since he was a kid. You know, it's interesting because it's pitted him against Elon Musk. 
in a strange way that, you know, where he where he might have come off as a better version of Richard Branson. Now he's come off as a slightly underwhelming version of Elon Musk. It's like he's been he he had this measured approach where he was willing to not be profitable for a long period of time. And he's just getting lapped by this weirdo who tweets about Bitcoin. You know, what I mean, right. how, do, how do you see it? Because that's yeah. I don't know. I don't see, no, I don't I, see I, space as a race he can win. Right. And, and let's posit that it's not clear that Bezos really cares. I mean, when you have 200 billion and you've created Amazon, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, does he really see himself in competition with Elon? I mean, I think he's envy- he must be envious of the way Elon has managed to command a fandom yeah. and create a cult of personality. Mm-hmm. At the same time as Bezos' own image has kind of curdled a little bit yeah. around Amazon's growth. So that is interesting. And and he's just not as charismatic or as endearingly undisciplined, I guess yeah. we could say, as Elon is. And he probably never will be. But, you know, maybe some of that poor juxtaposition goes away. Again, as I said, when New Shepard gets to suborbital space or New Glenn, you know, starts really competing in earnest with SpaceX. And that could happen over the next couple of years. And then maybe we don't see him as such a, a laggard. So looking ahead over the next, let's say, I don't know, two to five years, I don't know how that uh, adds up in Amazon time. I mean, I know they strive to be a day one company at all times, but is there going to be a surprise outperformer or let's say a dark horse in the running within Amazon's family of businesses based on your reporting and your research? So what is positioned among all these things that it does to surprise us? Yes. Yeah. You know, we will have to look at something that's underperforming now. And honestly, that's sort of hard to do. Maybe the one thing that I'll select is the the grocery stores, right? Mm -hmm. They acquired Whole Foods. They got 400 or so Whole Foods supermarkets. They haven't done much there. Frankly, I feel like that's maybe gone a little bit downhill. Mm -hmm. But they're opening up their own supermarkets under an Amazon Fresh brand using this Go Store technology, the cameras in the ceiling or the dash carts, which scan items when you put them in the cart. And they are opening them up, dozens of them around the country. So this idea that the grocery delivery business has taken off during the pandemic, plus maybe Amazon really getting to physical retail in a serious way, you could kind of see maybe this massive market that Walmart has so far dominated and Kroger, grocery delivery, Amazon becoming a significant player there. So in the intro, we made this reference to classical mythology with Prometheus Unbound, Amazon Unbound. Bezos unbound. Let's just end the conversation here on a similar note. What's Jeff Bezos's Achilles heel? Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. I will say that as he has gotten ever more ridiculously wealthy mm-hmm. and left the mortal orbit of normal earthlings, I'm <laughs> mixing metaphors terribly here. That's right. I feel like he's maybe drifted a little bit away from his customer and customer needs and customer demands. And because he will still, you know, be a primary voice of a company that is says it's customer focused, understanding what his customers need and want when he's living a rarefied life with every need and impulse taken care of, I think it might b- become harder for him to invent the next thing, to create the next service, to cater to the next need. And then, of course, you you know, he'll be competing against a universe of scrappy entrepreneurs in their garages who are much more in tune with the next thing, mm-hmm. the next customer need. So that that perhaps we've seen it a little bit. You know, can he really continue to create the new thing as he's a comfortable multi-billionaire? That is perhaps the challenge that might define his next 10 years. All right, Brad Stone, the book is Amazon Unbound. I thought this was a fantastic book for the man who has 
probably taken a look into the minds of every American consumer. You've turned the tables on him. You're going to say, take a look inside his mind, right? So for readers who would like an extremely riveting and uh, at times juicy <laughs> tome about the man behind Amazon, check it out. Thank you for speaking with me today. This has been great. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on John Ellis's newsletter of the same name, available at newsitems.substack.com. And you can find my analysis of the wide world of real assets at investableuniverse.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. See you again tomorrow.